Welcome to Think Orphan, the podcast for orphan excellence. Real talk with real people navigating the global orphan crisis. Let's join our hosts, Phil Dark and Rick Morton. All right, welcome back to the Think Orphan podcast. I'm Rick Morton, uh, along with Phil Dark, uh, ready for another exciting episode. Um, Phil, my friend, how are you today? I'm doing great. And, uh, you know, I'm even better because we are really close to being able to have our audience listen to this interview with Muhammad Emmanuel Nabu. And it's a man out of Sierra Leone who's got an incredible story and an incredible life that is now serving the children that he, he once was, basically a vulnerable child and orphaned child who needed so much. And now he's helping to provide what he knows he needed and often and didn't get for a good chunk of his life. Um, and now he's helping others to get it, as you're going to hear in this interview. Rick, what did you think of this interview with Nabs? Yeah, I thought uh, I thought it was really insightful. As uh, you know, Nabs really helps us to to think about those things that institutions just don't do well uh, to prepare children to think about the challenges that uh, that we need to face in. Uh, in, in, and the reasons we need to move children toward families and move children toward permanency and, and even give some, some great insight into, um, you know, into other environments where we might have kids in family like settings. Um, he speaks from a, a perspective of knowledge, um, about what was challenging for him and, and maybe what he didn't always receive. And, and so I would, I just encourage listeners, our listeners to, to really, um, you know, listen well and, and to value, um, you know, both the man and his experience. So folks, uh, you know, listen well, take some notes and let us know what you think about this interview. Also, if you could rate or review this show on iTunes, it would really help us get the, get the show out there. And more than that, actually, what will help really help this show get out is for you to tell others about it. Word of mouth is by far the best marketing we can get for this show. So if it's impacting your life and helping you to understand these issues better, let someone else uh, take part in that as well so that they can learn how to love these kids better and better. So with that, folks, here he is, Muhammad Emmanuel Nadu. Well, Muhammad Emmanuel Nabu, who, uh, you know, you, you typically go by NAB, so for this interview, we're going to be uh, using that nickname for you, but it's so great to have you here on the Think Orphan Podcast today. Well, thank you so much, Phil. I'm so, so happy to be here. I'm excited to be able to be part of this podcast, and I hope uh, whatever we share today will be able to bless somebody's life, somebody somewhere, and uh, will be of uh, resource to them. I have no doubt that's going to be the case. I know you've already uh, inspired uh, so many and encouraged so many, challenged so many to to love the orphan and the vulnerable uh, better. Um, but uh, before we get into kind of what you're doing and what God's doing through your life right now, mm-hmm. uh, can you just share a little bit about your story, your background? You know what you know encouraged you, what inspired you, and you know some things just transformed you from your life that has uh, brought you to where you are today? Oh, yeah. We always talk about success. Of course, we know that, but uh, you cannot stumble on accidental uh, success. You have to be able to, you move from somewhere. Everyone has stories. Everyone has some background. Some people have some, uh, you know, very uh, hard beginnings. And even if you came from a hard beginning, for a small beginning, some you have to be able to work out to set that for you. I grew up in a very poor village. It's uh, 
they are in West Africa, Sierra Leone. My family, my mom and dad, we are really poor. They could not afford to send me to school. But my dream was always to go to school because I wanted to be able to go to school and become educated and, and come out to be able to impact the society and, you know, help transform the face of the world in my own way. You know, it takes time. So my dad used to always promise me that now you want to go to school once we have a uh, a bigger farm and we raise some crops from that farm who will sell that and pay your school fees for you to go to school. So I, I was always hopeful. At the age of six, and I was exposed to some child labor and working very hard on the farm uh, with my parents and uh, with other people in the community. Every morning I would wake up and go to the farm to help to, you know, send the birds away from the farm so that they do not eat our crops. Um, I did that for a couple of years, and then at the age of uh, eight, you know, Sierra Leone had the civil war by then, you know, but the war was purely in the in the, in the urban areas, in the cities, in Freetown, Bo, and all the bigger cities. But uh, by then, we are living in the village. So at the age of eight, that war finally reached our village, and they reached in our village, they destroyed the village, they burned some houses, they burned our house down, and uh, they captured some of the men and women and children in the village. They ask them to be converted into child soldiers, some of the children, and the men to be part of them as well. And the women we are used for so many other purposes, you know, can imagine. And they went into the bushes to look for some of the other men and families that have gone to the forest to do their farming. And that's where I was captured together with my parents and my mom and dad. And they captured us, and I was asked to become a child soldier, which I refused. And my dad was asked to join them to be a rebel, which he refused. And, you know, they started, you know, shooting a lot of other people around that. And during that interim, I lost my dad as well. My dad, uh, you know, I lost my dad. And I got separated from the other extended family members, my mom and other people that we are all from the village. I got separated from them. So but I ended up spending a couple nights in a couple months in the bush, two months in the bush with different people from the village. And um, we found our way to the city. I was going to the city to look for my uncle, who was a tailor living in the city in Bo. So, but uh, he was not there because he had left by then to go look for, for, for us in the village because he heard that the rebels had reached our village. So we grew cross paths. We could not see each other. And then I spent some time. He could not find him in we spent some time on the street for a year, and then finally one night I was rescued with other children um, and taken into an orphanage called the Child Rescue Center. And I was among the first uh, set of children that we are rescued from the street after the war and brought into that orphanage called the Child Rescue Center. And, you know, there I grew up with so many other children and then went to school and college and finished college and came back and took up, picked up a job with the same organization, with the same orphanage, and I became the director of the orphanage over time. And then, yeah, so that, that's all how I went. And since then, I there I am. I, I became a director, and I helped to, to lead the transition, working with my the partners, helping children worldwide, uh, based in Chantilly, Virginia, and then uh, with the United Methodist Church in Sierra Leone and the UNICEF and the government agencies for them to say, you know, um, the best place for these children to grow will be with a forever family. So we're able to help to lead the transition to to send those children back to their various families across so that they stop living in orphanage and leave, move to family-based care. So since then, I have fallen in love with the work I do and uh,
uh, just being part of supporting children, supporting vulnerable children, vulnerable families across the globe. Yeah, there is uh, so much yeah. there. That's a couple decades uh, or more than a couple decades in a few minutes right there. Um, but there's so much there that I, you know, we could spend days talking about all the different things. But there's a few things that I want to, you know, really uh, focus on as we have this conversation today. And, and one of those things is you, know, you talked about you know, just your amazing story. I mean, that the story, there's so much more to it, obviously. You can only... If you're given a summary, you only get just snippets of what God has done, mm-hmm. the different things, and just the pain and the trauma and everything that's there. And I know that you're not even able to share all of it because it does bring back some of that. And, you know, that's something yep. that we need to, you know, obviously respect, but also, um, you know, know that there's so much more to it. But also know that God has healed you in those in the in in a lot of those things and enough to be able to do what you're doing today, which you know He does. He does. But some of the questions I want to just talk, focus on today, and some of the things I want to focus on today, really are, you know, you had the trauma as a child, um, and you went to the rescue center, right? And and when you were there at the orphanage with the conditions of the orphaned heart that you had at that point, because both your, you know, you had lost both your parents at that point, as far as you knew, right? Um, what were those, what were you feeling as a child um, when you were there, when you were on the streets, when you were rescued, when you were brought into this orphanage? Um, what were you feeling as, you know, the child in those situations? Well, yeah, that's a, that's a good one. And, um, not only me, together with the other children, but of course, initially when I went to the orphanage, honestly, I had a lot of, uh, um, you know, nights and nights and nights of nightmares, you know, terrible nightmares and, uh, you know, still imagine from what I have uh, had experienced in the war and uh, on the streets and the bush in the forest and with my dad passing away and losing track of my other family members. He didn't know that whether they were even alive or not and got separated from them. So I had a lot of, um, you know, series of nightmares and and kept taking people kept taking me to churches. Uh, the, the village, uh, the, the orphanage uh, mothers kept taking me to churches to pray. And uh, so eventually I became... Oh, I became, uh, you know, a little better with that. And But uh, initially when I went to the orphanage with so many other children, we are very sad. We are still afraid because of what we have seen just coming from the war. But uh, as time went on, they came and told us that we are going to go to school. And I was amazed. I was moved because, you know, as I said, education was really on my agenda. I, w- I always wanted to go to school. So when they told us, that, hey, we are coming to send you guys to school. So that was on a Monday. And that's why I love Mondays, really. That's kind of a weird thing about me. I love Mondays. Mondays are always my best days. I know most people don't like Mondays. But I was, oh, yeah, that was on a Monday morning. They told us, you guys are going to school today. They've already brought our uniforms. They, you know, they wanted to surprise us. It was so great, and I felt so good about it. So um, it, I said, okay. So that helped to take away some of the trauma, some of the experiences I've had, and because they playing with other children, and we started moving together, and they started providing so many things in the orphanage. You know, initially it was very, very good. It was very good when we went to the orphanage. Mm-hmm. It was very good. I, I'm not. There's no lie about that. They were meeting all our physical needs, mm-hmm. you know, to see whether we are sad or why smiling or why we're drawn. They will see all of those things. We are eating three meals a day. I was not eating three meals a day when I was living out there on the street. 
but we started eating three meals a day and all the meals had the correct proportion of full diet you know they have you know mm-hmm. uh, meat and chicken and fish and everything great and then uh, we had 24 hours of electricity you know power supply we had no time to watch movies you know watch them to to play kind of thing and then we had a playground and you know we have street supervision and care. We have pipe on water. We have showers to, you know. So all those things we never benefited from. We had them in the orphanage by then. So we are loving it. We are liking it. We are like, this is like a small, it's like a small heaven. It's like, a, you know, it's a very fancy place. You know, but as time went on, as we started growing, you know, getting older in the orphanage, we started realizing, we started asking, you know, typical question because the orphanage was more concerned about the physical needs. They met all the physical needs. Mm-hmm. But see, somehow, somewhere, we, are, we felt empty inside. The emotional needs were not met. The physical looks, the surface, the clothes, the food, the withdrawn, the we see that. But the inside looks, we started asking, what was really going inside of us? Feeling loved, feeling confused, feeling detached, feeling connected, asking relevant questions like, am I safe? Am I loved? Can I do things for myself? Am I capable? Do I belong? Like, am I respected? Am I included? Are my thoughts really valued? Am I understood? Do I matter in society? Because when we started going to school, there are some negative connotations attached to because we are coming from an orphanage. Because it's in, you know, when people come from orphanage over the years, they always think that these are like, they refer to us as nobody's children. Like no one's children. Like see, they we just fell from the sky somewhere and they picked us up. So we are always being a little bit segregated, you know, against in school. When something will come up in school, the other students will try to push us aside. They will think, oh, they don't know, they know nothing. These people are just in the orphanage, they are behind the closed walls. We we didn't feel in we didn't feel they were not like including us in some of the basic social activities going on. You know, we only get to to come on to the light, we don't perform very well in school. When the, the test results are out, if we come to do very well, if we, if we do very well in at math or English or something, or one of the subjects, they will notice us. But besides that, we are, we, we are hardly noticed in the communities around the schools. And because we are living in the orphanage, but we are attending public schools with other children who are not living in the orphanage. So there was always some kind of, a, you know, a segregation. We are not seen, we are not kind of embraced to be like everyone else. So we felt that pinch. So it was not really a matter of just a tip of an iceberg. We are in, you, the, 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 you see only a snip of the iceberg on, soft, on the surface of the water. But the rest, the huge chunk of the iceberg is underneath the water. So the, underneath the water, you see, you don't see that. You only see what is on top. So in the orphanage, you are seeing everything that was on top. But really on the bottom what was really underneath? Why were we sad? How, what, how, how are we feeling? What questions are we asking? What burning desires? What effort? Whether, were, we, were they making effort to trace our families or children, or, you know, connections? So all those questions that I, they kept coming. So there are some areas of that. that the orphanage was good. It was a little bit, uh, you know, like somehow deceptive because like the average life in Sierra Leone was different. From when we are living in the orphanage, mm-hmm. everything was provided. Sierra Leone is a country that half of the population lives on less than $1.25 a day. 
they do not have constant electricity. Only 2% of the population has access to electricity. They do not have pipe bomb water. Majority of the people do not have that. So where we are living, we have all these facilities. And the outside world was not having that. Mm -hmm. And so when we got, when I left the orphanage to eminent children, it was so hard for us to really, really adapt to the society. It was difficult. It was difficult. Yeah. It took prayers and discipline to stay input. Because as for me, I left the orphanage and went to the university. Imagine, you left behind the closed walls. You went to a university. You experienced normal community life. They took it to a higher level. Which is, you can imagine how university life could be. Sometimes very sweet. Straight from the orphanage to the orphanage. To, to, from orphanage to the university. Yeah. It was not an easy task for me, for me to adapt. And some of the students who went together, some of them did not even complete. Some of them dropped out. Some of the girls got pregnant. Because it was very hard for them to really be able to know between what is good and what is bad, what is new to try, what is not supposed to, to be tried. So there's so many other things coming up, kept coming at us, so many challenges. So it was not easy for you to adapt. So we felt that we are not really that prepared enough to face the outside world because we are in a world that was everything was provided for us. Everything was provided. Even doing our laundry, taking cooking for us. I never learned how to do domestic work. The girls didn't know how to cook. Where in my culture, girls, women get married for those reasons are considered when they want to marry a girl, you know, a woman. You have to be able to know, is she really a good cook? Can she take care of the home? The man, what can you do? Can you do? Are you handy? Can you do all those things? Mm -hmm. But in the orphanage, we never, we were never exposed to those conditions because they were doing everything for us. So it's like we are treated with uh, like bread and butter. Everything was served. When we went out now, we didn't know what to do. We didn't know what to do those things. So it became so difficult for us to adapt to the society because we are not prepared enough. So even though we enjoyed all those good things in the orphanage, you know, everything, I went to school. I was, that was the first time I was exposed to Christianity, by the way. So I love that aspect of it because I'm coming from a Muslim background. Mm. That's why in my name you have Muhammad there, which I decided to keep. Because it reminds me of where I'm coming from, my origin. Right. My parents, we are Muslims. As a small child, when I left the street, I went to the orphanage. I got exposed to Christianity, and I became a Christian. So I got Emmanuel, name, which God means God's with us. Mm -hmm. So I got that name. And then, so I was exposed to Christianity, which is good. I got education, which is good. I was able to get the 24 hours electricity, and I was able to expose to those other children within us. I was able to be supervised. Many things may have happened to other people, to the, to me, maybe. Who knows? Something may have happened to me if I didn't end up in the orphanage. So that was a good part. Some limitation, some downside is the preparation was not done, not enough for us to go to be to be taken out of the orphanage. And efforts we are not made to trace our family. So we are asking those questions as we are growing older in the orphanage. Yeah. Where are we, are we going to continue living in this orphanage forever? Where are our parents? So as you you talk about understanding, you know, your you, you came to know God and and as you're coming through these experiences, as you're coming through the orphanage, um you're going from I have everything, so this is this is great to understanding more and more. But 
there's these things that are missing and who am I? Mm -hmm. These identity questions, right? So how do you, how have you and are continuing to um, dealt with and continue to deal with the the childhood trauma as well as these identity issues? Um, How has understanding your identity uh, as a child of God, how has forgiveness played into that? What are some other things that have you have used and been able to continue to learn that have helped you understand your true identity and how you can actually do amazing things here in this world? Well, yeah, I have told people, I do this all the time. I speak with people around. I tell them about some of it. People try to say, Naps, you have gone through this trauma. You have gone through this hard life. But you, why do you intend to stay positive and happy and be able to stay adapting and do amazing things for for God's children, God's vineyard? I, that's, I always said it's not really about me. It's about others. And I believe, I try to use, make use of my time. I believe what all my education, all my life up to this date, my parents, I said, we are very poor. They could not support my education. Other people did this. So I have always got to respect that, you know, it's not about me. It's about other people. The focus has been not on me, but focusing on other people. How can I make other people's life better? How can I stay positive? Yes, I have gone through trauma. I have gone through, you know, hard life. But do I have to allow the hard life to continue to crush me down, to crush my spirit? So I've always tried to be resilient in it, like, you know, be able to stay positive. Cultivating resilience attitude, it's a tough thing to do. Positive attitude, expand. I've tried to always expand my connections. I've tried to be optimistic. Not that everything that goes around me is good, but I try to look for the good in everything that goes around me. I try to look for the good in every person I come across with. I love making relationships. I love making contacts. Like when I first moved to the United States, I found out about this. It's a nice place. It's a great place to live. But people are really seem to be very um, kind of separate and stay together and kind of, you know, not like too much of uh, like mixing with other people or talking. Like in the elevator, I found out my first weird thing I found. People go into elevator, no matter how long the elevator ride, people will not talk to each other. People will stand there. So my habit has been when I get into elevator, I face the other way. When people enter, they have to stand and then face the outside towards the elevator. I enter just where I enter. This is how I stand. So that I can start staring in everybody's faces and kind of creep them out. And people will go, oh, he's creepy. And this kind of thing. <laughs> but I strike conversation. And when I look in people's face, they ask me questions. Hey, how are you? I ask questions. Where are you from? Hey, tell her about it. So I ask questions. I get to connect with people. And when I share this, so people have told me, yeah, it is a weird thing that we don't talk in elevators. And some people have met their good friends, their relationship, their future, their spouses in elevators. Yeah, because they chatted. They talked. So I believe in making connections. That's one way to overcome some of your stress and loneliness you've gone through. The ability to regulate your emotions, the ability to see failure as helpful feedback. William James, a founder of American psychology, once says, the greatest discovery of any generation is that human being can alter, can change his life by altering his attitude. Just the way you see things, your attitude, the way you look at things. That is what's important. You, there is no, you cannot be, you cannot become a good Christian or good religion if you cannot do what, you know, like for your, what you wish for others. You don't wish for yourself. It's important. So the other thing I've always tried to do is do not, I don't try to give up easily. I try to look for the good in everything. Faith, hope, determination, and optimism. All these things have kept me going. I don't give up. I try to be confident in whatever I do. 
I know there are tough times, there are difficult times. But when you face your emotion, when you face this difficult time with more determination to achieve your objectives and to win great odds against all things you can see. Yeah. I recognize this state of school. Why I live the, why I try to live a non-comparison free life. Life challenges, your character, your focus. To be yourself in a world that is constantly trying to make you something else is the greatest accomplishment. Ralph Waldo, MRC, American philosopher and poet, once said that. So I begin to try to, to not only compare my life with other people. Everybody has gone through challenges. Do I have to keep crying over what has happened over me? And then I forgive. Forgiveness is one. Forgiveness and freedom. I try to, for, I try to forgive. My mom, I got separated from, with them for 10 years. My dad passed, died during the rebel war. And I, many of our relatives were killed during the rebel war. I try to have some of forgiveness. Because I come to realize that when you hold something, when you hold down something in your heart, you are not only harming the person you are holding against, you are also harming yourself. It limits you from growing. It limits you from expressing really, truly who you are. I try to do my best and leave the rest to God. Because even the Bible says, in Jeremiah 31, 34 says, I will forgive their wickedness and I will never again remember their sins. So I try to forgive because God is a forgiving God. He was able to help me throughout from the forest, from the streets, to the orphanage, and now where I am today. Philippians 3.13 says, Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and moving towards what is ahead. That is, I try to focus my attention to what is ahead. I try to enjoy the journey. The destination is there. I try to enjoy every moment along the way. Not only waiting until I get to the final point. I try to use my blessing to bless others. I try to make every movement count. I stop complaining and make changes. I try to be significant into the lives of other people because that is what I think God has sent me to do. And that's what God has asked us to do. It's changing your mindset. Change the way you look at things. And then the things you look at will change. So I try to cultivate this positive spirit and inspire people and motivate friends that, yes, we may have been, we may have been kind of, uh, you know, dropped. We may have been kind of crushed. We may have, our spirit may have been crushed. We may have been kind of, uh, you know, laid down. But that doesn't mean we are out of the race. You do not blow your, you do not be the, you do not be the referee to blow your own whistle. God is the only person who can determine your true destiny, your true end. So don't be too quick to take your, eliminate yourself out of the competition, eliminate out of the race. Always depend that, yes, he is a referee. He has plans for you. He knows why you are existing. He knows why you are alive. You are not dead and gone. That means you are not done. He has a plan for your purpose. Stay positive and stay up to him. So I try to look at all those things in order to keep me posted and keep me positive and keep me uplifting to move ahead. Yeah, that's so encouraging. So encouraging to me. I, I imagine that'll be extremely encouraging to others. Uh, you know, just everything you said there. Um, but I think that as you talk about, you know, continuing to look ahead, continuing to be optimistic, some of the things that I know to look ahead and be optimistic about are the work that is the work that you are doing um, to bring children into healthy family-based care. 
uh, rather than orphanages. And that's something mm-hmm. that you with, yep. you know, helping children worldwide or helping children everywhere. What is it? Helping children worldwide, right? Is the name of the organization? Yeah, helping children worldwide, yeah. Yes. So mm-hmm. one of the things, you know, you guys are doing is really being able to transition orphanages to fa- healthy family-based care. Yep. Um, yeah. You know, why is it so important? You know, as you talked about, even when you said it in Sierra Leone, the in the community, in the in the families in the, outside in the community, they're not getting all the stuff in the orphanages that you've you know said you got as a child. But there's something, as you said, that is so essential and critical that they need in the families. So, a couple of questions: Why is it so important for the children to be in the families? And then, how are you and your organization, um, as well as how are you encouraging others to build up those families so that they can be as healthy as the uh, the orphanages in the material side as well. Yeah, people ask that question sometimes. They say, Naps, you grew up in an orphanage and you came as a director of the orphanage later on and you led the transition of the orphanage. So people may think, that, oh, why didn't you want uh, other children to also come to the orphanage to enjoy all those uh, good things you are enjoying? You know, they live the, the fancy life that you live a little bit for, for some time when you are in the orphanage. So I've always told them, it doesn't mean if your life... It's a uh, life is how this is how it is. It's how we see it. And people, you look for what is best for people. I live in I live in the orphanage with many of our children. We had all those great things I, I talk about. And again, we had those limitations. What was really really important, which was family, get reintegrated, get reunited, know where you are coming from. Sierra Leone is a place. It's a culture that has. Uh, it's more of a very in- inclusive culture. People are socially minded. They want to be together. They they live together. So this is what happened. We wanted families to feel empowered. Because I have lived in the orphanage, I felt the way I felt, and many children felt the way they felt. They wanted to always get connected. They wanted to know their roots. They wanted to stay with their families and know where they are coming from. They wanted to know who they are, their identities we are missing. So his, helping children worldwide in connection with uh, in conjunction with Child Rescue Center and the United Methodist Church, wanted families to feel empowered. Intervention to be long-lived and, and very holistic. Wanted to create more leaders and less followers, people to be the expert. Wanted to build the capacity of families and individuals. Wanted to stop creating or deepening the dependency ratio in, in the country. Wanted to focus on the root cause of the problems. Wanted to work with the families, local stakeholders, and seek their opinions and not just work for them wanted to move them from where they were to another level. So this was something that happened. We did a survey. I led it, but then the government of Australia was also moving in this direction. When I became the director, to see how can we, my staff and I, we worked together, we did a survey. All the children were living in the orphanage by then. We found out that 98 of the children living in the orphanage were having parents. They had living parents. So we found out that the only the main factor why children were coming to orphanages because of poverty. Their parents were sending them to orphanages because they could not afford to send them to school and they could not afford to, to give them medical care. So can you imagine, I said to myself, we imagine to feel this way that the only way to provide a basic need for your child is to send your child to orphanage. And that became concern. That became the case for many other orphanages. I started doing research within the country. And my, the partners helping children worldwide on this side started doing research 
around the globe. When we started doing the transition, we didn't know any other other organizations were doing the transition from orphanage care. Child Rescue Center, with Helping Children Well, became the first organization to transition children from orphanage care to family-based care in Sierra Leone. And that gained recognition. You know that over one million children are living in separated from families. As classified as orphans, 80% have living parents or relatives they can return to. Poverty and other related family issues led many of the children into orphanages around the world now. From faith to action, estimated that 5 million plus children are living in orphanages, and over 8 out of 10 of these children have at least one living parent. Children growing up in institutions have so much and high negative outcomes on emotions, social and cognitive development, which I just listed initially. From LUMOS, which is a, from LUMOS statistics, an organization said, children living in institutions will find out that they are 500 more likely to com commit suicide, 10 times more likely to be in prostitution or teenage pregnancy. We started seeing it in our own case. Many of the girls who left the orphanage, because of the preparation, they got pregnant, they could not finish their school. They are 40 times more likely to be involved in crime. And children in institutional care are often termed as no one's children or nobody's children. So we started looking at the leading causes, that poverty, poor economic status, single parental, parental unemployment, like, like parental alcohol abuse, like presence of domestic violence, like children with special needs, and I started thinking the only solution we could come out with to solve these problems, is it only orphanage? Really? And how smart people are around the globe. How smart we can make sophisticated, we can bring sophisticated, uh, we can bring solutions to the most sophisticated problems. So the only solution we could think of, ending poverty, single parental, parental unemployment, parental alcohol abuse, is it orphanage care? Really? There must be a better way because we, God has created us. God's initial purpose for humans' existence is to belong together, to be in families, and not to separate families. So we started looking at that. We started doing family tracing. And we started looking at the World Health and UNICEF joint policy that all children have the right to grow in a family environment, in an atmosphere of happiness, love, and understanding. That families are to be supported by a strong local safety net in caring for and nurturing their children. The family or family environment is most conducive for all the round development of all children and they are not to be separated. So we believe that yes, children belong with families. So we started asking questions. What do we do? After we have finished the survey, 98% of the children have families. So we started tracing the families of all those children from one village to another, from one town to another, to one city, city to another. We found their families. We found their uncles. We found their aunties. We found their grandparents. And some of them we found their mothers or fathers. It's a culture in Africa. It is very, very rare, very difficult to see a child that has no relative. The child may have lost their biological mother or biological father or one of them, but their uncle will be there, their auntie will be there, their grandparents will be there who will be willing to take care of these children just like their own children. The only problem with poverty because of economical risk, they, cannot, they don't have the money to send those children to school. So we said, okay, we are not going to have children be in the orphanage. These parents would like to have their children, but they have no other means. That's why they are sending them to orphanages. 
after we have traced the families, it took it, 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 it was an intensive process, like 18 to two years it can take to do all this tracing and started bonding opportunities. The parents of these children started coming into this, to the orphanage to, to have time with their children, to have family child time. The children started going home to spend weekends, to spend holidays or vacations with their, with their families. And they find out that over time, the children we are resist, they, we are putting all resistance to come back. When we send them home for a weekend, when the time comes for them to come back, they will not want to come. No, I want to stay with her mom. I want to stay with my uncle. I want to stay with my grandma. I have not seen her for a very long time. I didn't know he was alive. I didn't know she was alive. And the parents also we are expressing the same concern. So we said, this is working. They really want to show love, genuine love to their parents. And they want to feed that genuine love from their children, uh, from their children as well. But because of hardship, poverty, they cannot do that. So they have to stay here in the, in the orphanage. So we started working on that. They bond our relationship. We started doing home tracing and assessment to make sure these children will come back home someday and their home is, uh, they are ready to receive them. They are not going to come back to the orphanage. They will still continue to go to school. We'll continue to monitor and supervise. We had this whole celebration, preparation to everything to happen. We form, we, we put that to go, we call a robust case management in place. We had a whole organization, a whole program, invited government officials, and we sent the children home. And the parents were happy that day to receive their children back. The joys and the smiles in their faces to have their children back with them. And we continue to and we introduce what we call family strengthening programs, empowerment programs, so that the families can become empowered and feel valued that they can be able to take care of their own children. We introduce them into programs on financial management, budgeting and saving and business scheme so that they can set up their business, so that they can become educated in order to take care of their own children. They feel, they feel value that I can provide lunch for my child now. So that has been going on successfully. It is going on very well. And we have a robust case management in place so that the case managers will continue to go to the homes of these children to visit their parents, to continue to do counseling. They continue to visit their school. We continue to support to make sure that they are okay, they are thriving, and this is happening. It's amazing to see what watch what God is doing in the lives of these families and these children. Some of the children who never knew how to cook, now they are learning to cook. And they enjoy having fun time with their own families. So it is amazing. And we said this is the best thing to do. So since then, we started partnering with organizations like KFU, like a One Million Home, like organizations willing to, to, to support this transition. So we are working now with other organizations around the world to see how can we help you do this? Because many questions are coming up, how to trace the families of these children, how to prepare the families to accept their children, what happens to the orphanage or institution staff, what to communicate to the donors, what happens to the facilities or dormitories, how to handle post-reintegration, what happens to short-term mission trips, we help them to answer all these questions. What will happen to the staff, what will happen to the dormitories or the, the facilities that the buildings where the children we are living? So we help them to answer all these questions to tell them that the best care, the best place for the children to grow is with their forever families. Families may not be perfect. They fight, they struggle, but they remain family. It's the true identity, where you belong, where you are coming from. If you don't know where you are going, always know where you are coming from. It is a say that we have in Africa. If you don't know where you are going, know where you are coming from. That is your family. Think about your family. Who brought you to this earth? Don't forget them. So it is always important that family stays together. 
So we consider first family option, wherein the family, the mother or father or the auntie or the uncle, we cannot, the second option will be a foster family, a foster parent. We train a foster parent to take care of the children. So we think about all these options, that yes, a child belongs in family, in so many other areas I have. I leave it, I have seen it happen, I have seen orphanages around wherein their parents are alive, they will go out to see their children in the orphanage, they will not have access. They are afraid to see the children. They are afraid the orphanage workers will not allow that. The family, the families will peep in through the holes, through the windows, through the fence to just see their children. But the orphanage staff will be afraid because they will think if they notice that the children have families, the sponsors or the donors will stop sponsoring them. No, I have seen that happening in all orphanages around the world. And that brings me to tears. I believe that, no, these families want to show love to their children, but they are not able to do that because of poverty. So why can't we empower them to do this? Why can't we do this way? So that instead of taking their children away from them, this is sustainability. Crisis happens and only take one child from that family and leave the family in the crisis. And then what happens? This development is not going to be sustainable. The child grows up, the dependency, all the other children, all the other family members are going to depend on this one child who has got this education to support the rest of the family. Now the child has to go back into the poverty family, into the poor family, into the situation to help solve that. It takes more time. So now with my organization helping children worldwide and the charity center, they are taking the lead to help recruit children from the streets into entry home, prepare them, trace their families, send them back home, continue to support them, work with other organizations to trace families and send children home, support family system, support villages, support rural areas to become sustainable with well, with water, with, with, with uh, uh, um, uh, schools facilities, with toilet, with sanitation facilities, with school, with academic education, with, with adult literacy, with business microfinance loan, with uh, a village enterprise, so that the, the, the whole... You know, the whole thing is built. We are creating more leaders, people to become experts in their own lives. So it is a major shift that we decided to do. We, are, we decided to shift from we being the experts as organization to the families being the experts of their own lives. They can find solutions. They can come up with that. We decided to make that major shift. We decided to move from telling ideas to asking relevant questions. What have you done that has not worked? What can you bring to the table to make sure that this thing works contextually in your own context to make sure this works? We started moving from there. We started partnering with them for their success and not for our own success. Moving from coaching the problems to coaching the people. What kind of strength do they bring to the situation that might just make this work? Measuring and weighing in from their own perspectives and from various angles to start seeing the solutions from their own angles from God's angles, from their community angles, from their family angles, not from our own angles, because they, nobody knows their lives better than they do. Even the young child in that situation, they know their lives better than, they know their own lives better. So they are in the problems. They know how tight their feet are in the shoes and how the shoes are born in them. So they can be able to bring us solutions to help increase, to help solve those problems. So we believe that development approaches should be this way to focus on holistic approach, to make sure there's sustainability so that people should not always continue to depend on you to support, but they can be able to support themselves. 
That was what our Lord Jesus Christ did. He never healed people halfway. He healed them all the way, all the way. He did not heal the blind man one eye. He left the other eye on him. No, he did everything, holistic healing, so that they are able to become independent and take care of themselves. They feel proud. They feel value. They feel, they feel dignity that yeah, they can stand up for themselves and take care of their children. That is what the Lord wants us to do, to help to build significance into the lives of others so that these people can in turn go back and become blessings to others. So over, the, over these past two years, when we started this whole transition, we have been able to, it will be amazing to see how, how over 567 extremely vulnerable children have received scholarships and free education. How over 1,800 you know, primary school students have participated in schooling. How many teachers have benefited from the teachers' learning collaborative training so that they can go back and teach other schools, other teachers around. Over how many students in colleges and universities. Over how many women have benefited from the, from the family strengthening program. How many men have benefited from the family strengthening program to become secure. How many over 1,000 you know, 1,139 total infants and children under five years of age have enrolled into the hospital nutrition program to become sustainable. Over 8,000 patients treated for malaria. Over 1,000 adults and children treated for HIV and AIDS through the Mercy Hospital. Over 17,000 patients received quality care from Mercy Hospital for Mercy Medical Outreach, regardless of their ability to pay. Over 900 villages have gained access to clean water safe drinking water from, from boreholes and toilet facilities. This is how it is. How many family success stories we have had. These families have become now coaches or mentors to other families to become sustainable. That yes, we can do this by ourselves. We, we are strong. God has brought us some. We have some, some people have, I always tell people, the, the way, the best way is not, the best help you can give to people is not to share your riches with them, but is to help them discover their own riches. Help them discover their own values. They have that. It's innate. Everybody has potential. Everybody has something in them. It takes time for people to discover those potentials. So all they need is a little push. Not your, all your ideas, but to sit with them. Ask them to become the experts. Tell, ask questions instead of telling them ideas. Stop coaching the problems and coach the, 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 the people for them to do their own thing. So we believe in empowerment. We believe in family strengthening. That children belong in families. And they thrive well in families. There's so many more. There's so much more to this. And I, you know, I hope that in the future we can continue the conversation. Uh, but right now we do need to uh, bring it to a close. But uh, there's always a couple questions we ask our guests. And, uh, you know, we're going to ask you the same. So uh, first question is, what have you read, watched, or listened to that has most impacted your thinking on how we can love orphan and vulnerable children with excellence? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> As I said, what have you watched and love or hear and kind of thing? Number one, I have lived this, right? I have lived it. Not only watch or, 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 or read. I have lived it. I have experienced it. My life in the orphanage, the experiences from other care leavers who we have all interacted, we have talked about their lives when they are living in the orphanage. I have lived it. So I know. I know how it is. And then despite that, I have also seen during my leadership roles as a director of an orphanage, I have seen other orphanages, the way things are done. We try to always satisfy all of the donors, the partners, because they have to send in their money. I have seen orphanages wearing, as I said, their families will come around to see their children. 
they have they are in this very big wall. Their families will come and stand by the windows. They want to see their children. They will start whispering. But the orphanage clearly, the orphanage, the orphanage staff will have to hide the children away. Or if they want to have the child talk to their family, they have to hide that. They have to do that in a secret. Because why? We are afraid that if they come to find out that this child has a parent, the child will not be supported. Or the child will have to leave orphanage and go stay with the family. And they, or maybe th that will happen that the child, the family will not get to provide education for the child. So that is not really right. If you really want to help people, you can help them genuinely. They do not have to live in orphanages. I have read books like my, my like, like McPhee's book, which children belong in families, which it says so much. And with all these cool statistics about how many children live in orphanages and after that number, how many of them have lived in parental life, and with not addressing the root cause, because of poverty is the root cause here, and we think the only solution is to put them in orphanages and that's going to solve all the problems, it has not been solving the problem. It has not been solving the problem. The robust, the, the, the root cause has to be solved. We, we, if we just take care of one child out of this family because of crisis, we forget to do all of this. We are just fighting the smoke. We are living the fire that is burning everything underneath. We are not really trying to uh, kind of fight the fire. We are fighting the smoke. That is just what we see on top. There's so much more to it. So with what I have read, and what I have lived and experienced, and what I have seen happening around the world, around the orphanage world, the best place for children to grow and to thrive is to their forever families. Mm -hmm. The more children we have back in families, the sweeter the world will start becoming, and the better the families can be. Because the root of our families always follows us. We've got to send those children back home to their families. From what I have learned and what I have lived and what I have seen and continue to see in my work, that children belong in families, that not all children living in orphanages are orphans. And there are other solutions. We have always done it this way. We can see do it the other way around. We can say wow to this idea and accept it to say, okay, let's try this. This is the way to go. We have done it this way for years. That these children don't have family, but research has proven that yeah, these children live in orphanages, they have children, they have families. So why can't you trace our families and send them? We want to solve the, the root cause of the problem so that they can continue to grow. But people are there, they want to do this. But because of fear, we sometimes hesitate to do it. But I trust you and I challenge you that we all can do this together. That the best way for children to grow is with our forever family because that is the first God's intention that children should grow up with their families and families stay together. And it's important for us to do this and continue to help them and make this development become sustainable and not just short-lived. What one person has most impacted your thinking on how we can love orphan and vulnerable children? What one person? One person or people or group. Mm-hmm has helped you most understand how we can love orphan and vulnerable children? Well, um, I mean, I have, I have more of like, um, I, I can't, it, despite the physical thing, the, the, the workshops, 
and the conferences are attended around the world from like people like uh, Fatal Action, like the Helping Children Worldwide, like KFO, uh, you know, like, you know, all the information going around um, the conferences we attend. I, I have just, I have uh, a statistic read from Lumos and UNICEF and that, you know, send the children back home with books I've read. I think it's what it's biblical, what's in the Bible. What in the Bible that to you I will provide a family. Mm-hmm. There's family, a family for the orphans, for the homeless. You visit them, you see them, you you make them belong. You, you know that where they are coming from, it's important, and for them to know that. So, like all people have read their books, and all groups have attended, all the organizations I have worked with, and the the research I continue to do, and the conferences I've attended, like Agape Children's Ministry. Walking to taking children from the street and send, tracing their families and sending them back home, it's amazing to see that. And so, so many organizations, so many policies have informed my 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 thinking. Yeah. And the Bible, what the Bible says about children belonging in families, about taking care of God's children in the best way possible and giving them a way that they can thrive. That just drives me to the top to say, yes, we've got to do this work. With diligence, we've got to be able to do it. If we say we're going to do it, we've got to be able to do it the way God wants us to do it, because it's important for us to send children home, the children back home, to their families and work with them. So many of these policies and many of these organizations and conferences have helped inform my my thinking around about uh, helping children grow up in families. Well, Nabs, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for uh, just sharing your wisdom, sharing your life with us. Um, it's something that I, I appreciate, and I know many others will as well. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much, uh, Phil. I really appreciate this time, and I hope uh, what we've learned to be able to uh, influence people, and uh, you know, people can learn from it that, uh, yes, um, we are doing this work. We have to always know that it is not about us. It's not about you. It's about others. It's about uh, making other people's lives better, and uh, we can always do something. Um, the same thing we do, we can always continue to do it, but just with a different approach. Well, thanks again, Nabs, for uh, sharing your wisdom with us, sharing your life, um, really just uh, being vulnerable uh, to be able to share what you went through and what God is doing in and through your life. So, Rick, what did you think about this interview? Yeah, you know, I, I feel I think there, there are lots of layers to, to Nabs' story that, that are um, good reminders, good informers of us as we you know, think about the collaboration that we do to care for orphan vulnerable children. I think one thing that comes, you know, starkly to mind out of the beginning of his story is just how important the work of poverty alleviation is um, in the spectrum of of all of the work that we, you know, that we do in orphan care. He, you know, he certainly is someone who was affected by, you know, obviously by war. And that's not something that's that, that most of us are in the in the position to be able to, um, you know, to, to deal with directly. Um, but he, he also talked about this idea of, you know, just his, his being very much aware that his family was unable to provide an education for him, unable to afford uh, an education for him and how desperately he wanted that. Um, 
and and the you know the tremendous pressure that that put on him and put on his um, you know his biological family and and so I think it's a good reminder to us that uh, that that the greatest need that that many um, many of the vulnerable children that we minister to have is just uh, stability within the family that they already have um, and and our need to 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 not pass over um, the 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 provision of the necessities of life and creating sustainable solutions um, where people are able to be cared for and to continue to provide for themselves is is an important part of you know of the work that we do and and I think I fear sometimes in in the orphan care community we 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 leave that work to someone else or we don't you know we're we're dealing with the crisis of what's broken uh and 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 families that are broken and children that are institutionalized and those kinds of things and really fail to get far enough upstream um to really affect the kind of change that's necessary um to to make you know endure an enduring difference in the lives of kids yeah, you know, it, it's something that's really interesting as he's talking, um, as, as we went through that interview, where he kept saying things like, you know, as you said, his dad would always tell him, one day, you know, you're, I'm gonna, you're gonna get an education. I'm gonna get you an education. I'm gonna make sure you're gonna get an education before his dad was killed, obviously, he was yeah. talking about that. And then later when he's in the orphanage, he's saying there were so many things that they gave me, but other things that they weren't able to give me, right? So he's getting the education, but he's realizing there's, realizing there's other things. Right. So, you know, we often talk about, you know, orphanages give these kids all these things that they need, but they're not giving them what they really need. Right. The family. Right. The reality is they need all these things. Right. And, and our kids all need all these things. It's what we really tried to talk about in pursuit of orphan excellence to really flourish. It's a both and it's not an either or. You know, I talk about this in the class that I teach, too, that, you know, a lot of the, the work we do in the context of orphan and vulnerable children and caring for them and loving them is when you're talking about when helping hurts and the principles in there, it's really mm-hmm. relief, rehabilitation, and development all at the same time. Yep. In a lot of these, in a lot of the lives, and a lot of the, the situations we're dealing with, we need to come in and, and deal with the triage. We need to come in and deal with the things that they really need. And we need to do the ongoing, lasting development and care and love for these kids. What does that look like? Well, it's, it's different in different situations. It's different in different places. Um, and, and that's really the, the hard work and Nabs did such a good job talking about a lot of that, that, that in his personal story, so much of it was, was really there. He had his family that he knew. And then he goes in to the orphanage and he knows what he's missing because he mm-hmm. had it. He had the dad. Right. And then he gets out and he realizes now, like there's so much more to what is being provided. So how can we provide it? What does that look like? But he also knows it's not easy. It's not something you can just do and flip a switch and go, okay, well, now let's do this. But there's so many different things going on. So I, I am so encouraged by him. I'm encouraged by his life. I've, been able, I've had the pleasure of getting to know him in person as well a little bit. Love to be able to do that more in the future as well. But to be able to really get to know these men and women who are going through it, I think of you know some different folks around the world like Peter uh, Mathai over in Kenya and Ramuthwe over in Kenya and, and Ruth Wachuka over in, in Kenya as well and some other folks like that like with NABs and, and they're, they're speaking now they are actually leaders they're, they're care leavers who are now leaders in the movement in the space to really tell their story so that people can hear it and learn and know the importance of having a family and the other things that these children need to really be able to flourish 
And uh, that's just something that we have to really believe and move toward together uh, to really be able to provide that for the children that we're caring for. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, another thing, Phil, that kind of occurs to me that that he um, he really underscores is is the need for collaboration outside of kind of our our narrow lane of focus. And that, you know, that that many times we when we when we're talking about collaboration, we're talking about other folks that are that are specifically within, um, you know, kind of the orphan care tribe and 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 those you know, the, the folks that are focused into into similar things and use a similar vocabulary and approach things from a similar perspective, and and I, I think he, you know, in listening to his story, um, you know, just thinking that when you look at the cluster of needs that um, you know that he had along the way, um, you know, through his life, that that there there was a need really for some people to come around and and some pretty you know, broad-based work together in order to address those, you know, address those needs for him, and um, and and that and that part of maybe where the institution failed him was that the that the institution didn't do things that it wasn't capable of doing, and but yet wasn't partnered with others that could come along and fill in those gaps, and and so I, I think it's a it's a call and a reminder to us um, to to sort of get our heads up and look around. And to be, you know, to be aware of those who may not exactly be doing the same kind of things that we're doing, but that have, you know, valuable insights for us and and and, and valuable pieces, you know, pieces of expertise. And uh, and so I, I really I appreciate that and um, you know appreciate his insight as one who has you know has walked the road as a vulnerable child um, to you know point out the need. Of um, of us continually, you know, being learners and collaborators, and and those who are, you know, who are seeking holistic solutions. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you don't need to. Uh, well, I mean, you had me a collaboration, right? You know, it, it, that that's something that uh, obviously, folks, you, you know, that I I actually live and breathe collaboration. It's what I love doing. Um, it's something that I believe strongly in. Uh, for so many reasons, and uh, as, as you just said, we need to do it not only within our organizations, not only within the sphere that we work in, but really across everything in the church, and we're often going to collaborate with people outside the church as well, and that's very biblical concept, um, that people are, you know, you're going to work with people outside of of your worldview and your belief. Now, you're going to not compromise on your worldview and belief. But God is going to use people uh, that aren't Christian for the kingdom. He's, he can use anybody and anything for the kingdom. And so if we aren't listening to some of the wisdom that uh, you know, comes out, whether it's business wisdom that, that comes out so we can have, make our organizations better, now you have to put it through the gospel filter. I want to make sure I say that. But uh, you know, there, there is a lot of wisdom out there that may not have a Christian label on it, right? And we've got to be careful. We've got to be really careful when we're doing that. Um, because particularly in a world that uh, tends to take the, the Christian and, and kind of you know ma- massage it and make it sound really good and, and and close to what the gospel message is and and tweak it just a little bit so it, it becomes completely different. So we got to be really careful. But at the same time, it's something that I really believe that we need to be collaborating with others 
to love these children, to love in situations. Because if we aren't collaborating with people who are outside of our um, real comfort zone, maybe the best way to say it, um, we're not going to hit a lot of the parts of the world that uh, that really aren't Christian. We won't hit a lot of the parts of the world that have people that disagree with us. And if we aren't doing that, we're going to leave a lot of people in the dust. So uh, that's something that as is so critical. And uh, yeah, I'm glad I'm glad you brought it. Well, up. and I think you know you think back to the story that that he told about um, you know d- just about the school setting and and the fact that when he was in the orphanage about how um, you know how he was he was mainstreamed into a. Um, you know, into a school that wasn't necessarily just for orphans, but the problems that that created. And, and it just leaves you to wonder, like, how would things have been different if, if more stakeholders in the community had really put their heads together, had realized that as an issue, and, and had looked to try to step in and stand in the gap for those kids, um, you know, in their own community to make up for what the orphanage wasn't well positioned to be able to do. Um, and that's, you know, that's the role of the church. That's the role of the school. That's the role of, you know, of, of businesses and others that come around. And, and, and the fact is that it, it calls upon us to, um, you know, to really be aware and inconvenience ourselves to step into places. And that part of the world, part of the message that I think we have to, you know, to really, um, push on the church globally about is how, how are we creating those, partnerships within communities and creating those conversations so that the resources that are already there and the resources that already exist are are really um you know perceiving the task well and and contributing to a solution within you know within their the bounds of their own community and um and i think it's a he gives us a prime example of the fact that that's a strategy that you know that that needs to be uh, needs to be employed. Absolutely, and you know it wouldn't be doing the interview justice if we didn't talk about the fact that he talks about we need to talk more in elevators. <laughs> so you know that uh, <laughs> that, was, that is the most so awkward thing in the history was, of history, right? It, I was laughing to myself. I did. I, I chuckled during the interview, but I was laughing very hard inside because. I can just imagine him on elevators just turning around to a quiet elevator and, hey, how you doing? How's everyone doing? And having people think they're on candid camera yeah. or but then, you know? But then, let's be honest, they're all looking at uh, so, him saying, that's that's a really precious African man who is very friendly. Exactly. But if you or I did it, they'd be calling the police. So it, it Maybe yeah, so. It, it, it's, all, so. It's, all about, yes. it's all about context. <laughs> and so, but I do love what he said is, and I agree with this 100%. You need to make more connections. Yeah. We need to make more connections with people because you never know what will happen. For sure. And I don't know where he's getting his stats talking about, you know, people have have met on elevators and are now married and, you know, they're now dating and jobs were found. And, you know, I, I think he might be, uh, you know, taking some liberties it on could that. Be, it could know. be pastorally I, I, speaking. I, yes. But uh, <laughs> I don't know. But... But I really do appreciate that. I appreciated him his commentary on the U.S. and I agree that our community is lacking here in the U.S. and we aren't uh, as good at that as we could be and should be. That's so, right. anyway, with that, uh, unless you have anything else that's just burning on your tongue to say, I say we move into our recommendations. And I think you had one for us, if I'm not mistaken. Is that uh, is yeah? That um, just a, a little book that I've uh, that I've been reading here. Actually, we're getting ready to. 
delving this to, as a team here at Lifeline, but uh, a book called A Plain Theology for a Plain for Plain People or Plain Theology for Plain People uh, by a guy named Charles Octavius Booth. Um, Booth is uh, was an emancipated slave uh, who was born here in Alabama in Mobile and pastored uh, a significant church. Uh, here in Montgomery, and but it is uh, it's just really a great little book. Um, there's kind of been some updating that's been done to the language and that sort of thing by a guy named Walter Strickland, who's at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. But I would really uh, commend this kind of this little doctrine book or little systematic theology to you um, because it really brings a richness of perspective. And uh, you may not agree with everything that he says about everything um, in in the book, but that's that's part of what's good about, I think, about theological reflection. But one thing is certain, he comes from a perspective um, that is um, that is totally, completely devoted to God and 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 very much saturated in the gospel, but also very respective or, or respectful and 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 aware of uh, his journey and and what he's seen the Lord take him through, uh, and and that really informs the way that he he approaches. Um, you know, theology, which is just kind of talking about God. And and so I'd, I'd commend it to you. Honest to goodness, it's probably like a day or two long read for most people. It's a very easy read and just a fantastic book. And uh, and I would say uh, go out there and, and, and grab it. And it's from Lexham Press uh, called a, a Plain Theology for Plain People by Charles Octavius Booth. Is it on audio? Uh, I don't think so. It's, okay. uh, this is, yeah, this is probably a little more of a, um, it, it's put out a little more from like an academic publisher kind of perspective, okay. but it's really not, it's not really deeply academic. So, okay. um, he just kind of talks. Can you, uh, can you read it to me? Um, for a price. Okay. All right. Well, you know, I just thought I'd, <laughs> thought I'd ask. So, um, in an I'm elevator, going to, I'm going to read it to yeah, you in an elevator. In an elevator. <laughs> Now that, I will fly <laughs> to Birmingham for that. We can just go up and down until we're done. Um, speaking of Birmingham, my recommendation, I just, I've been preparing a sermon on the rich young man of Matthew 19, the rich young ruler, some of you may know him as, and one of the sermon series that I've listened to and prepped for it is from your boy David Platt. Uh, while he was at the Church of Brook Hills out there in Birmingham. Yeah. And it's called The Gospel Demands Radical Abandonment. It's three parts. It's out of, I believe, chapter six of his book, Radical, um, which uh, is a fantastic chapter called How Much is Enough about American Wealth and the World of Poverty. And it speaks to so many of the things we're talking about on this show, so many of the things that we need to be thinking about as Christians, particularly in uh, America, for our global audience, to pretty much anyone in wealthy areas um, of the world and in uh, in poverty areas as well. It's a, it's about idols, but it's it's specifically speaking about money and speaking about what we're doing with our money and are we is it an idol? Is it an idol in our life? And and the gospel demands radical abandonment. Parts one, two, and three. Fantastic. Uh, strongly recommend it. You will not be disappointed. 
So, Rick, anything to add before we close up another episode of the podcast? Man, just uh, really looking forward to um, to continuing with the interviews that uh, that we've got in front of us, and and some uh, you know some people that we're going to get a chance to spend some time with, and and man, want to hear from our listeners. Um, so, if you have people that you want to want to hear here on the Think Orphan podcast. If you have ideas or topics that you'd like for us to to look for people to interview, to to chase out or or to bring to the table, we we want to do that. And and so if you'll look in look at the website, look in the show notes, uh, send us an email. Um, that's where we get a lot of the a lot of the idea capital for who we invite into the space and 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 what we bring to you guys as listeners. So um, interact with us. We'd love to hear from you, and uh, and and would love to love to do something that would be um, of direct benefit to to you and your ministry. Folks, we can't do it without you. That's what Rick's saying there. I agree. And uh, well, we could do it, but it would just be me and Rick talking. So without you engaging <laughs> us, engaging the conversation, you know, it really is just us talking to each other. And our hope is that's not what it is. As much fun as we have doing that, um, it's so much more. And these topics, these issues, these conversations are so important. And I, I hope that what we are doing is providing a model for you to be having these same conversations in your churches as you're doing work, wherever you're doing work, um, in your workplace, wherever you are. These are conversations that are real and these are important. And so I just, I do pray that you have the conversations. I pray that you engage with us. I do pray you you give us different people that we can be interviewing, getting on the show. And uh, as I always do as well, I pray that you use everything you're learning on this show to help you to love orphan and vulnerable children better and better each and every day. Thanks a lot. Have a great week. We hope you've enjoyed today's Think Orphan podcast. For all the information in this week's podcast, please visit us at thinkorphan.com. You too can be part of the conversation. Send your questions to info at thinkorphan.com or join us on the Think Orphan Facebook page. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again on the next edition of Think Orphan.